This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome, or rather welcome back to John Richardson and the Future Notes. It's our third series. I am John Richardson and delightfully and thankfully for your listening pleasure, I am still joined by Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mark Stevenson. Hello. Gentlemen, we return with a new title. We do. A sexier title. I don't know about sexy. Do you think it's sexier? (laughs) Yeah, sexy, isn't it? It's all impending doom and, you know, biblical references. (laughs) Book of Job. (laughs) You know, the Book of Revelations is also known as the Apocalypse of John. Is it? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's what I've called my next tour, the Apocalypse (laughs) of John. Yeah, it's it's all about the revealing, you know, when I've talked about the etymology of the word apocalypse on the podcast before, but, uh, you know, it's the drawing back of the veil. And yes, it's the revelation of John, also known as the apocalypse of John. I was going to say, the book of Revelations is supposed to be all about future events, you know, Uh, and certainly in the episode we're going to be focusing on today, it's the allegory of the spiritual path. Yes, we're here to reveal things, aren't we? That's that's the nature of the podcast. We're going to reveal some things, some options for our future. It, the, the, the meat of the podcast will remain the same, or the corn, if you will. Um, it's all about feeling better by engaging in difficult conversations rather than avoid them. And by God, we've got some difficult conversations lined up, haven't we? We've got some big topics in Series 3, so big that it almost makes you think you've avoided them for the first two series. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Religion. I definitely think we're not going to get invited to any dinner parties from here on in. Cause it's like, oh my God, all the things you shouldn't talk about in polite company we're going for in this series, I think. Yes. War. Religion. Race. Serials. <laughs> um, we're not doing serials, but I just didn't want you all to think this series is going to be incredibly heavy. So there will be new features along the way. We'll learn some stuff about Mark and Ed. Uh, with our new feature, the trivial question. What annoys me about you two is you're really clever and you're really rational, and I don't like it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So each week I want the listeners to send in uh, just a topic, just a, a random trivial question. What do you think about this? Or here's something that gets my goat. What do you think about that? And I just want to see if I can make one of you lose it every now and again, like happened about sweet potato chips. I just want a little moment. Like for me, it's driving. There's a moment, every journey, no matter how long, I can drive for 12 hours, I can nip to the shop. I will really irrationally lose my temper about something. <laughs> and you both drive, so that you must both have that moment. What is the thing when you're in the car that makes you think, Yay! 
Well, I didn't have a car for 25 years when I was living in London. So uh, I've only recently gone back to driving. Oh, I bet you're awful. It's you then. It's... I'm behind you. <laughs> well, I don't think, I wouldn't claim to have the best driving skills in the world. But yeah, they're not that rusty. I mean, I did occasionally hire a car. But uh, I did get pulled over by the police and have my car impounded on Friday. Um, oh, which was quite annoying due to uh, a kind of miscommunication between my mum and I as to who had actually insured it. Um, oh! uh, yeah, and it turns... This has got rich so early. I, know, I was t- hoping for a middle lane drivers and here you are. Dusting down with a law. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, and I got and I got nicked, uh, and essentially, uh, yeah, car was uninsured, uh, six points on the license, three hundred pound fine, car towed away to the impounding zone, um, and ended up in the police station with my daughter going, "I've never been to a police station, Daddy." I said, "That's a good thing, my dear." <laughs> oh my God! Book of Revelations. Five yeah. minutes in. <laughs> We're now doing a podcast with a criminal. Yeah, well, the irony was, this is the best bit, right, is I, uh, the last time I got points on my license was 32 years ago, uh, about a month after passing my test, where I ran a red light and got pulled over by a police officer on the same road from the <gasps> same police station. And I'd been driving down. I was only going to try and find petrol, um, which is the other apocalyptic element of the whole tale. Uh, and as I drove down the road, I saw the police car parked on the side of the road. And I had a little reminiscence to myself about what had happened on that road 32 years previously. And then, of course, I bloody manifested my own arrest. Oh, my <laughs> God. In a film, it's the same copper as well. And yeah. it wanders up to the car. <laughs> All right, there. You again. <laughs> 32 years on. Yeah. You just can't learn your lesson, can you, Mr. Gillespie? That's Somerset. That's Somerset, say, John. What, yeah. It was Somerset. Yeah. You just what, someone told me the way to get that sort of east in is computer. That's the word, not computer. You ain't learning your lesson now, isn't that, Mr. Gillespie? Well, that was the computer check what got me. <laughs> oh. Right, well, top that. Unless you've been sort of, you've had the stinger pulled on you, Mark, and you were just slipping down to the shops and it turned out you stole the car. I tell you what makes me mad in a car is when people don't say thank you. Most people have to say, you know, they go past, they flash a light, so they give you a bit of a wave. There's just always yeah. one fucker who's just like, yeah, fucking tip, fuck off you. And they just drive past. And it's usually something a bloody BMW. And it's just like, you arrogant fuck. Or it would have taken, you see, you could have, you could have just <laughs> said, hello, thank you very much, thanks for, you know, because that's what I, you know, that would have made all our lives a little bit better. I let you through. That was a good thing. You, you know, said thank you. That was a good thing. And even in this dehumanized set situation where we're stuck in these these boxes, we can kind of communicate on a human level and say, and say thank you and, and cooperate in a, in a human way, even though it could be completely different backgrounds or whatever. And then just occasionally somebody walks past and just goes, no. And it, it annoys me. It's because you live in London. You live in London. Yeah. You know, Norfolk drivers are, are far kinder. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's because most of them run insured, so they have to be, don't they? Sort of... <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of things there. First of all, for any of you wondering what we've been up to in our downtime between series two and three, genuinely, a lot of Zoom meetings about the podcast where we discuss whether or not we should swear in the third series <laughs> and whether we're alienating a younger audience or whether or not the you know the tone of the debate should influence the language we use. And as you can tell by Mark's managing to use the word fuck in one sentence three times there, <laughs> we remain committed to the F word. Um, it's a choice. We have serious conversation. Secondly, that's very base level driving anger. I'm now at a point where not only do I expect to be thanked when I let someone out, if someone lets me out and I thank them, I then get annoyed if they don't acknowledge my thank you. Ooh. <laughs> so I want to be let out, little wave, and then they go, good man, well done, thank you. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too much. That's too much. So let's move on. If you have any of those trivial questions, then the contact details remain the same. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and you can find us on email here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. We are here this week, kicking off with a bang, the future of religion. Mark and Ed, are you religious people? Does anyone have to declare an interest? Or is either of you a vicar? I know, Ed, you've probably impersonated a vicar as part of a grift, getting chased <laughs> by the police with your dodgy Bibles full of illicit snacks. No, I'm thinking I'm just, you know, lazy, totally lapsed C of E uh, in terms of origins with memories of like 1970s, early 80s vicars with moustaches. And our, our, our local vicar when I was a kid uh, even had an overhead projector, which felt like the height of modern technology in a church, you know, in Brundle in Norfolk in about 1982. Very nice. Yeah, I I. I... I was religious till about the age of ooh, seven, I think. I wasn't mm-hmm. particularly religious, but I went to Sunday school, and it was like it sounded like a plausible story. And then I, then I discovered um, quantum physics and evolution, and I tried to square that with my local vicar, and he seemed very disenchanted with that level of questioning because he was like, "No, this is my indoctrination." <laughs> It's, you're not supposed to be questioning stuff at this age. But I was like, yeah, but dinosaurs. And oh, know. you could have had such a different experience with the right level of sort of modern vicar. Yeah. said, well, you know, people are always trying to pin down Jesus. But once you start trying to think about where he is, you actually miss the fact that he could be anywhere. If you'd have had the right vicar who'd read the right book about quantum physics, mm-hmm. you could have gone down a very different path. That's true. Um, but, no, but as we'll come on to, I think... Um, I have a deep interest in religion and what it does for society and when it works well and when it work, when it doesn't work. So I wouldn't, you know, I'd hate people to think, oh, they're you know, instantly anti-religious. I think we look at religion, Ed and I, from a systemic point of view, which is where does it fit in? When does it benefit society? When does it not? When does it go well? When does it create problems? How does religion and state interact? So it's not, we're not, we're not coming at it from a, you know, if you're, if you are of a religious uh, bent we're not here to mock or um or challenge that at all it's, it, our, our interesting of it is, is a systemic issue i think that's important to say we have a guest coming up so i think we, we will get into what i think will be a very enlightening and interesting conversation about what we mean by religion and what religion is was and will be but before we welcome our guest give me some sort of facts and figures in in terms of where we are globally and in this country in terms of whether religion is I was going to say effed, but I think Mark has already laid our stance out on swearing, so fucked. <laughs> well, so if you go to the back to the last census back in 2011, um, about 7%, about 4 million people in the UK opted not to answer the religious question at all. And then you've got 25% of people say no religion, about 60% Christian, 0.4% Buddhist, 1.5% Hindu, half uh, percent Jewish, 4.8% Muslim, 0.8% Sikh. Um, and that's interesting but actually then we have to look at active practice 
So attendance at religious ceremonies, which you know has to be once a month or more, is actually highest among Sikhs. About 75% of Sikhs go to temple once a month or more. Uh, Christians, it's only about 29%. And so many commentators, therefore, describe the UK as a post-Christian, multi-faith and secularised society. And that's with the belief that in the classic model of secularisation, you know, religious faith becomes less plausible and religious practice more difficult in advanced industrial and urbanised societies. And that's all down to the breakdown or disruption of traditional communities and norms of behaviour, the spread of a scientific worldview, uh, which diminishes the scope of the supernatural and the role of God, um, our increasing material affluence, which promotes self-reliance and this-worldly rather than otherworldly optimism, uh, and then the greater awareness and toleration of different creeds and ideas. So that tends to encourage religious pluralism and eviscerates commitment to any one particular faith. So that's what the sort of formal definitions tell us. But also there's big shifts in demographics. You know, uh, there's a lot of older people who still go to church, uh, but they're obviously dying out. But then if you look at what's actually happening in churches themselves, uh, Church of England alone has closed 1,500 churches in the last 40 years. So they've gone to dereliction, demolition and residential, artistic and commercial conversion. And then... We're actually at the position now we've got less than a million people go to church services regularly. Uh, And that obviously they get a bit of a blip at Christmas. Um, But baptisms are down uh, 12%. Marriages are down 19% in churches. Even funerals are down 29%. So actually the the use of... people aren't dying now, they're so unreligious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but on the flip side of that is only a third of people are agnostics you know, um, which who believe in a sort of God spirit or life force, which I know always pushes Mark's empirical woo buttons. Um, but there's not many very hardcore atheists. Um, there's lots of people who have a sort of loose sort of faith, um, famously, obviously, including uh, the Jedi religion from Star Wars, uh, which in the 2001 census, uh, had loads of people sign up in the mistaken belief it would be recognised as an official religion. And even the Office of National Statistics demonstrated a sense of humour by saying 390,000 Jedi there are. Oh, very nice. Oh, very, very nice. Mark, you had your uh, you had your woo button fingered there by it. Didn't want to come in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that the, the thing that kind of did for my religious belief was a discovery of science and scientific method. And, um, you know, the idea that... Um, if you have extraordinary claims, you need extraordinary evidence. But of course, the whole point about faith is that you don't have evidence. In fact, there's a brilliant bit in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's this, this fish called the Babel fish, which if you stick it in your ear, it'll instantly translate any language. And this is how they get, get over that conceit in the book so that everybody can understand each other across all the galaxies. And um, the philosopher, philosophical argument goes that the Babel fish is the final proof of the non-existence of God. And the argument goes something like this. So man goes to God, you must exist because the Babel fish is such an impossibly implausible, ridiculous thing to have evolved. It can't have evolved by chance. It must have been designed. Therefore, you exist. And God goes, yes, but existence denies faith. And without faith, I am nothing. Therefore, and I, I don't exist. And he probably disappears in the puff of logic. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> Maybe I should read that. <laughs> <laughs> it just made me want to read it. I give the film about 10 minutes and switched off, but maybe I'll give books a go. But as I was saying earlier, 
I think, and as we'll come on to with Sanderson, our guest, I think there's something very, very interesting about what religions do mm. and how they bind people together or separate them. And, and systemically, they've been hugely important in both the political scene and indeed in some places, the, the growth of, a, of, of the scientific worldview of which I'm a fan. So, so um, I'm not anti religion specifically uh, you know all religions i think they they have good bits and bad bits but myself personally um and it's probably one of the reasons i you know have this trouble with with death and not liking it, as we discussed in series two is um yeah i am i am a man without any kind of god what i don't like is just people i mean my mum's religious and i i i get a lot of comfort from her comfort that she takes from it and i see the value it has for her you're testing pascal's wager there though aren't you who's the 17th century french mathematician who he suggested non-believers should nonetheless go through the motions of religious observance just in case a vengeful god does turn out to exist (laughs) i mean that's just such a bullshit argument isn't it i mean you know really so uh, you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof and and unfortunately religion deals in not proving things by very definition it's all about faith so although people equally argue that faith supports the abstract intellectualism which is required for science and the law. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But that's just because they're making excuses. Uh, oh, I really want to ask you both about ghosts now, but that's a whole different. That's a drunken podcast that we do, I think. Yeah, my mill is my mill is haunted. Is it definitely? Well, my mum says she's seen a ghost here, and the previous occupants claim to have seen ghosts. Is that your mum who forgot, forgot to insure the car? <laughs> <laughs> We'll do a drunk podcast where we talk about ghosts, um, but we should probably introduce our guest. So there are those weeks when when the question, how effed are we, is a surprise to me. Uh, Fashion, sanitation, those sorts of things. There are weeks when I sort of know there's going to be some meat on the bones after this first question, and this is one. So thankfully, we are joined by uh, a guest expert this week, and I will pass you over to Ed to tell us who that is. Yeah, it is my extraordinary delight uh, to introduce a very old friend of mine. He is a Shoka Fellow, which is the Nobel Prize for Entrepreneurship, also known as Britain's favourite self-appointed secular vicar, the founder of the Godless Congregation of the Sunday Assembly, which has gathered over 200,000 people globally, and also the Lifefulness Project, which I'm sure we'll be touching on both of those uh, during this recording. He is focused on joyful gatherings that allow all of us to live our lives more fully. He is taller than me, more charismatic than me, uh, more bearded than me, has brighter shirts than I do, better jokes, uh, and I love him. Uh, the last time I saw Sanderson was at uh, Wilderness, where he was conducting a mass wedding of frenzied festival goers. So it is an enormous pleasure to welcome Sanderson Jones. Hello there. That felt like it needed a round of applause. We've never done I that mean, before. That was that... such a big intro. That was a hell of an intro. I love that. I'm going to play that uh, sort of just when I need a bit of a sort of boost in my confidence, uh, you know, starting to get romantic. Uh, I'm just going to do that on. I'm going to just keep my eyes on the prize. Thanks very much for that, Ed. It has been pointed out by many a listener that Ed is the sexiest voice of the regular presenters on this show. So don't play it too soon when you're getting romantic because you may finish too early. Such is the sexiness (laughs) of the voice. (laughs) Let's get into it then. All right. Religion. How effed are we? Who wants to go first? No one. <laughs> Maybe it is all right then, eh? Well, I'm I'm willing I'm willing to give it a go in that I would argue 
that if you are religious and you're coming from the point of view, but as of like current definitions of religion, and that what you really want is for there to be more religion, and that was how you were going to define if we're fucked or not, then you'd say we're pretty fucked because traditional religion, as we know it, is fucked. Whether that affects the world is a bigger <laughs> question. <laughs> what do you mean by that then, in, in terms of? Those that hold those beliefs hold them as strongly. Are you are you talking about declining numbers? Yeah, and I'd say that the bigger thing to look at is so yeah. At the moment in the Brit in Britain, so fifty three percent of people are no longer religious. Uh, there's I think like seventy five eighty percent amongst eighteen to twenty four year olds. There's a whole load of different surveys. They say fewer and fewer people believe. In the US, it's the same. Where you know far very sort of like way off the numbers that we're on uh, far more people who say they're the nuns that's the big thing in the u.s the rise of the nuns n-o-n-e-s people who aren't affiliated to a, a religion but if you were sort of like all about institutional religion in its traditional form you would think something is going very very wrong but that, that's true for the uk and america as you say Sanderson. but uh isn't it also true that, I mean, I was looking at some research in advance of this but from the Pew Research Center, which actually said they've modeled uh, the, the increase in faith globally and actually predict it's going to be higher, like from 84% now, I mean, it's moderate to 87% in 2050. And they sort of describe it as a, a secularizing West and a rapidly growing all the rest. So is it is it just a sort of Western phenomenon that we seem to be secularizing or is it going to be repeated all around the world? So I think within those numbers, you will find that the percentage of people in those countries are increasingly secular, but due to the growth in absolute numbers of the population, uh, they are there will be more religious people. And uh, so it's, you know, a question of like where on the curve you are. But that is really important that there is that religion isn't going to go away in any time soon. And even in the UK and in in the US, you're going to see things like uh I don't know if you've been on Witch Talk. Uh, which is uh, the witchier part of TikTok. And there's all manner of manifestations. Oh, yeah, you're on it now. There's all manner of people manifesting, womanifesting, undoubtedly, and uh, sort of uh, channeling uh, the secret to manifest what they want in their lives. And so that's not going to go away. I'd say the bigger issue is that it's looking at religion functionally as what does religion do for us? And then you start to look around the world and go, oh, one of the reasons we are fucked is because we don't have a uniting or a set of beliefs. We don't have a sort of these uh, ways of seeing the world which can speak to how we know things, how we gather, where we get our meaning from, how we treat the environment. Really, if you go and look at religion as like that sort of building block underneath society, one of the reasons we're fucked is because we don't have that shared common ground. Hmm. That was one of the questions, you know, I thought of looking at how fucked we are is that, you know, um, it seems to me that religions wane when they are out of step with what people need. And then the problem with that is in terms of, you know, how effed are we? Is it, I think you 
get a bifurcation that some people try and recreate the past and go we've got to get back to where we were it's a bit like brexit really we've got to go back to when everything was you know wonderful and and pleasant and whatever and so you get sort of you know a kind of a regressive uh step so you could look at say you know um the rise of sort of very extreme forms of um islamic belief for instance was kind of like well let's get back to this kind of caliphate idea where everything was you know as it was in the olden days or because you know the sort of the centrist religions if you like aren't really fulfilling their purpose you get a a, a move in the opposite direction to kind of you know conspiracy theory and extreme woo which you know at its worst like vaccine denial can you know can actually kill people so so it seems to me that the main problem is as you said Sanderson, the functional role of religion in supporting people to live in the world in which we live the mainstream religions particularly the West seem to have really lost their their grip on that. Well, I was going to say, again, looking at that functional thing of like, what is it that religion gives us then? And so that's Emil Durkheim is the person who first came along and was like, uh, actually, this common idea of what uh, is a religion is someone who believes in a supernatural entity. But then he looked at things like Theravada Buddhism, which is an atheist Buddhism, and you, and he was like, well, that's, that's got no God. So they seem to like... <laughs> go to temples, they've got robes, they go and pray, they've got all these things. So he started to look at it functionally. And then once you start to have that, though, one of the issues is that you can end up looking like football. I think even football is a place where people go and have their religious impulses met. It's certainly where John has John has a lot of your religious impulses met via Leeds, don't you? And, and Bielsa. Isn't that not true, John? I, I, I would say that, yeah, were I to meet Bielsa, that would be that would be an out-of-body experience. Have, having recently shaken the hand of Gordon Strachan, <laughs> you know, I would describe that as a, as a very spiritual and religious moment for me. <laughs> In all seriousness, when you go there, like, do you go and watch games a lot? Or I occasionally? Do, yes, I have. I have uh, obviously, there's been a global news event which has stopped uh, those of us who would like to gather their gathering. But yeah, I've, I've been whenever I've been able this this season and I guess I do I sing songs and we all dress up in the same outfit yeah I guess you could describe it as a religious experience I swear I'm yeah a naughty boy <laughs> you I, people get tattoos I drink the wine yeah um, yeah I eat the veg pasty of Christ um when you talk about like the because, uh, you know, it, it's a different thing for me to think of football as a religious experience. It, it's probably best right at the beginning to say when, when you say religion, obviously most of us picture the religions that we know. Is your definition mm. of religion something much wider than that? Religion is what is known as a polythetic category. And I learned this uh, on a religious anthropology course, and I just love it because I didn't know the word before. And when you say polythetic, everyone thinks you are wicked smart. And so uh, what polythetic means is it is a category where the different things which are in the category uh, don't all have to have some essential properties. So, you know, you can, one that we all know, have you ever got involved in one of those interminable arguments about what is a fruit and what is a vegetable? We can have one right now if we want. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there we go. That's the, the future of fruit and veg, separate pod. And so that is because no matter what it is, 
it's they're cultural. There's some definitions. Tomatoes, aubergines, and chili peppers are all vegetable are all fruits according to some definitions. But if someone gave you that in a fruit salad, you'd be like, oh, there's this restaurant is fucking awful. I'm leaving. <laughs> and so the issue is, is that when we try to go and define religions, it can be really tricky. And so I'd say one of the problems, uh, one of the things in the future of religion is that we have to get past the word religion because religions have done super useful things for humanity in allowing us to get together to act as societies and yet now we're having this discussion when it's like oh the future of religion is you know we need something which is like a religion but uh, in order to go and progress and get people to perceive climate change to go and come together in new ways but if the moment you'd call it a religion loads of people i think wouldn't want to be part of it right and so there, there are different ways you can go and define these religions, the sort of religions that we know and love, go and meet that category. But you get some people who talk about civic religions, national religions as well. So Brexit could also be seen as a religious impulse. <laughs> the Brexit religion. I mean, sign me up instantly. Uh, <laughs> let, let me worship at the altar of Farage oh, uh, and, and, and drink, drink the blood of Weatherspoons. And so, yeah, that's, that's why I'd say one of the things is to really go and expand our minds and to look at it functionally in terms of what does religion give us and then how can we go and find something which does that for the world in a new way. Wow, well said. <laughs> mm. I'll, I'll be quiet after this because I think I'm coming to this conversation from an intellectual level that the three of you are far advanced of. But I, I'll ask this question and then I'll let the three of you run free because that's what our listeners want to hear. So when you say, and, and this is the question, are we fucked? And you talk about the decline of these religions as being fucked. M my knee-jerk reaction is from what I understand of the traditional religions, I don't mind that. And I, I would see that as a step into these other belief systems stepping forward and other conversations. Do Is your belief that the decline of these things, and when you say we don't have that unified belief system together anymore, do you think that was a, a better time? And in what way? I wouldn't say that it was necessarily a better time, but the uh, having these structures allows us to cooperate and that's mm. the thing is to allows us to go and get on often like people will go and look at the crusades and the muslims and the christians did awful things to each other and also to jews and that is a very bad thing and that is definitely religion is bad but what you don't see is that the christians were actually nicer to each other and the muslims were nicer to each other and from that point of view in those areas in christendom and in uh, the caliphate they actually saw themselves as humans in a different way to other people. And that was actually really unifying. So if you go and look at it as a religion, as something which allows us to cooperate, then they are useful. And losing these religious structures, that can be really problematic. So I'd say that, no, I don't think that losing religion as it is, is a huge deal, provided we come up with something which goes and performs the functions that it did. And that's the thing. And that's what all of my work is about. So it's not a disenchantment of society per se, but it is a moving away from those less effectively serving religions. 
Yeah, like nowadays I'm getting these conversations the whole time with like really progressive uh, religious people who are, you know, are really inquiring as to like what is it which is keeping people away from church. I think it's that we're talking about this, and we should be nicer to gay people. And obviously, should definitely be nicer to gay people. We should be <laughs> more. We should be uh, more welcoming. It's like, well, people don't believe it anymore. That's it. Like the story doesn't ring true. There's mm. some great other stories which people believe, and so you're not going to go and swing it with uh, a sort of traditional religious framework. However, when you go and take away from that, you're actually losing something huge because going back to that Leeds United example, I think that football, I go and see on YouTube, like groups of blokes hanging out on a weekend, singing songs. I'm like, oh, that is so much stuff that I love doing in Sunday assembly and in non-religious religion that uh, if, if only I'd got into there sooner, I'd have had uh, more sort of European away trips and uh, <laughs> sort of less really worthy weekends. Well, it makes me think there was an incident at a game this weekend where a player was very badly injured at the game I was at. And it was a unifying moment because the, the, the home fans, it was an away player who got injured. The home fans gave him a standing ovation. Mm. Leaving. And that's because I guess in terms of what you're saying, that moment of, oh, we're actually all humans and we support mm. this sport and the athletes who play it transcends the tribal rivalry between us. Is it a weakness of the religions that have become prominent that they don't have that higher ability to say, well, actually, we're all humans because they are so dominant in, in what the belief system is going back to how we all came to exist that we're not able to say, well, the fact that we exist anyway is what really unites us and the religion is a subset of that. I'd say that there's, uh, they're actually remarkable, uh, Islam and Christianity are actually remarkably inclusive religions uh, in that they really want you to be part of them. And in the old days, if you weren't, you'd die. Uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's inclusivity. That's the definition of it as I understand it. That's how much they cared about your souls. <laughs> uh, so, for instance, Zoroastrianism is a really old religion, and that's about to sort of disappear because you could only be a Zoroastrian and can only be a Zoroastrian if both of your parents were Zoroastrians. And compared to that, Christianity saying, oh, no, in fact, you are a Christian. All you need to do is uh, say that you are. Islam, uh, really positive. Uh, Judaism, uh, also, like it was, they, they didn't have a mission to convert. And so it's that thing of like, it was progressive for its time, but now we need something which can open its arms even wider. Mm. What you're talking about, Sansa, reminds me of um, the work of Robert Wright, the philosopher who wrote a great book called uh, Non-Zero. And it basically said, you know, even in the breadth of apocalypse, you can kind of see that what human beings have done over time is collaborate more than they have not. They, you know, they played these mm. non-zero sum games and religion has certainly been a, a way of doing that, getting more and more people to collaborate together. And we're now at this stage of perhaps what's happening, this schism that we're seeing or this discussion we're having is because we're now truly in the age of interconnectedness and truly in the age of global problems like climate change. And um, there isn't yet that non-zero game binding mechanism that that brings us all together so the, so i think what we need probably is um john richardson to become the figurehead of a new universally binding religion it'll be you know it'll be one on from jesus christ john richardson it'll be cardigan wearing yes um it'll be self-effacing 
and you can unify the entire world. Who'd thought this podcast would have led to you becoming a messiah, John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you give give me a few pointers as to how to do that in the next sort of 40 minutes or so? Sanderson should be able to help, I think. Um, <laughs> how do I unite the world? Uh, teach them how to sing in perfect harmony. I've heard <laughs> that that is a good first step. I've been to Sunday Assembly. That's definitely not perfect harmony. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Sanderson, is there a question here, though, like in terms of you know how we got this fucked? That we, we kind of take it for granted that religions are born, they grow, and then they die. I mean, you've just mentioned Zoroastrianism. You know, and we, we don't seem to accept that reality that it's natural for them to often just fade out. So, you know, when someone tries to start a new religion, um, which arguably Sunday Assembly is a sort of secular version of, it's often dismissed as a cult. Uh, but when we when we actually formally recognize a faith, you know, we start to treat its teachings and traditions as timeless and sacrosanct. And then when a religion dies, it becomes a myth uh, and its claim to so-called sacred truth expires. So... Do we not accept the fact that actually sometimes these religions do just have to wither? Oh, I am. Uh, I don't want to sound pro-religions withering. Uh, it'd be hard for me to take a position against because it just happens. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that I'm sort of getting at isn't that like all religions are grey and that they should all be uh, kept forever, sort of like maybe a safari park for different religions. <laughs> uh, so you can have some sort of like Thor and Odin <laughs> worshippers in one place, just really tending to the flame, uh, breathy-voiced, Attenborough-like, commenting on their ancient rituals whilst we debate <laughs> whether the Aztecs should still be able to slaughter thousands of people in a day. Uh, but if you want to fund that, I'm happy to have an exploratory conversation. Uh, the uh, Yeah, I think that it's one of the problems with the sort of, with the fact that we have this conversation with the word religion is that we're at this moment when previously, when religion didn't work, there'd be a reformation. There would be non-conformist religions. There would be different types of Catholicism. Suddenly St. Francis of Assisi would arise. There would be the Hasidic Jews who would start to do Judaism in a way which was less about the word mm. and more about singing and dancing. And, and so it would go and be reimagined. But because those traditions have gone, we end up sort of still trying to meet those needs, but mm. in a way which doesn't answer the full needs of us and doesn't have the complexity and depth and richness of those traditions. Uh, to go back to Leeds Football Club, it does loads of things really well, but you know it's probably probably not doing as many naming rituals, funerals, uh, sort of <laughs> meals for the poor. Uh, it, I don't know if it's got a theology of suffering. I'm sure it probably has at various ages. Oh, I think it has. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, what we do have is that uh, I mean there are a lot of Leeds United themes funerals and spreading of ashes. There's a very active mm. uh, food bank. Uh, collection organized by the supporters trust so you know the more you talk about it the more I, I realize i'm a religious man i'm actually profoundly religious but is not part of the promise of most religions i understand it is that there is something after this and there is a supernatural component and it's mm. and it's a and it's a promise and actually you know if you look at um, mental health issues and one of the things that everybody actually finds difficult or most people find difficult they say they don't but really the idea of death you know who was it i was listening to a comic i think it was andy hamilton the other day he said uh, who, who wants to live forever and nobody in the audience put their hand up he said let me phrase that question a different way who here wants to die 
and everybody, and everybody mm. laughs. So this idea that you know there is something beyond that's kind of less that, that you will be rewarded or you'll go to that seems to be a very important part. I mean, certainly for people I know who are religious, they will say actually that that is something that's you know really important to them because it gives them some kind of peace in the face of the existential horror that is death. You know, can a secular gathering or ever ever live up to that amazing kind of like well, don't worry if you die, you don't. Yeah, I think that's where a functional explanation of it is good because what you're sort of saying is you need something which makes death seem not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember which art critic said about Damien Hirst's work. He went, yes, uh, I'm glad that he pointed out that death is rather the fly in the ointment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you need to have something which is an answer to death. But I think there are, again, lots of secular philosophies which also have that it's pretty easy to say you're just going to live forever and ever if you go and think about what what religion there would have to be in the future or i'd even say like get rid of the word religion i love the word worldview mm. and they've actually changed the syllabus in the uk to say that it uh, teaches religions and worldviews at gcse and i think that that is the sort of direction that we should go and say, actually, we need a new worldview, which is one of the key components would be, how do we answer this terror of death? And we should really look at that face on, because if not, you just go and get that little icky feeling that like you're going to die. And so you go and buy something unnecessary, plan an enormous mausoleum, invade another country. <laughs> but isn't the problem these days, Sanderson, that actually we've we've got a sort of plethora of worldviews and they're all sort of conflicting and rubbing up against each other. Cause we are, we've always had those, but we haven't always had the enabling spaces for them, you know, and the, the online mm. world, you know, if you went out into a medieval town square and shouted out your unorthodox beliefs, that was going to get you into trouble. Uh, but obviously in an online world where we're all increasingly fragmented, you know, we can all shout our worldviews at each other and that's not leading to a more harmonious scenario, is it? Yeah, I think that that's one of the things which is really important is like, how do we gather? And yeah. I think that's a, something that congregations do. They say, okay, how do we gather? How do we talk to each other? Mm. Who's in and who's out? Who's a human? And like, is the answer beating the other side? Or is it saying that actually there's a way for us to be in the room at the same time? Mm. How can we do that so we expand our humanity? Like, if we can't sort of be in a room with all the different people in the UK, how on earth are we going to live in a world where the problems we're facing are with people who are so different from us? And how can we go and find that shared humanity? So this this really makes me think, Sansa. So, you know, I want to pull at this thread a little bit because. You know, obviously, you know that Ed and I, particularly, are sort of very concerned about climate change. Spent a lot of our time working there. I couldn't give a shit about it. <laughs> Not bothered. <laughs> oh my god! I'm going to go back to one of my favourite thinkers on the conflict between, say, a more uh, secular, say, scientific worldview and and a, and a more religious view, which is uh, the great Carl Sagan. And in his wonderful book, Demon Haunted World, he said, we've arranged a global civilization in which most crucial elements profoundly depend on science and technology. We've also arranged things so that almost no one understands science and technology. This is a prescription for disaster. We might get away with it for a while, but sooner or later, this combustible mixture of ignorance and power is going to blow up in our faces. So for instance, what I'm thinking about now is... There are certain, for instance, evangelical Christians, particularly that I've met in America, when you talk about climate change and you know the mm. existential threat that that, that brings, um, they don't dis necessarily disagree with that. 
they just go, great, bring it on, because that's end of days. That's Book of Revelations. That's where we need to go. So, you know, and that seems to me like a really dodgy sort of combustible mixture yes. that, 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 that Sagan yes. was talking about. <laughs> I uh, It's very easy to go and say that I disagree with those folk wholeheartedly. For having done Sunday Assembly for many years, I always end up going, hmm, very interesting point to a lot of things as I try to be inclusive to viewpoints I disagree with wholeheartedly. But that one is, I think, an example of religion done badly where in fact what you've done is taken a lot of these things and you've created a really closed loop system and you are no longer able to take in information from the outside world which could save you. And that's also happening with vaccines at the moment. And so communities are being killed because they're not taking in this information. And so I think that what you've got to do is to try to go and create places and spaces where people can have their needs met because you hang around in those places. People who go to evangelical church, a lot of them have got huge questions, but they're able to also have a lot of answers given to them. They're able to have social connection. They've got places where their kids can be looked after in a US where there's no social security net. And so they're having these different needs met. And because of that, they're able to go and have these sort of opinions which are deeply unhelpful. I'd say, how can we go and learn from that and go and create the organizations and institutions which can be at the forefront of change? If you go and think about the, well, I mean, Methodism in South Wales, I think it was Harold Wilson who said, the Labour Party owes more to Methodism than Marxism. And it's, you've got to think about Martin Luther King, how the civil rights organization worked because a lot of those people with a whole load of ideas that you would disagree with wholeheartedly got together and were organized and were able to take action. You know, if there were organizations which were there day in, day out sort of doing that, then that's how really big change I think could happen. I mean, there's a good point there, isn't there? Because you do get those movements now to a certain extent. You know, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, they do also involve a sense of community and connection, you know, uh, an idea of gathering, a shared moral purpose, you know, and some of them even have sort of elements of confessional or or sacrifice or ritual um, embedded Mm. in them. I mean, they are, in a way, mass secular movements which are akin to some sort of religious uh, movement. And and I guess that's where I would really love this idea of worldview and mm. to say that actually these things should become more like religions. Uh, I took it as a huge badge of honour when I heard uh, Mark uh, quoting uh, quoting me at a, a talk he was giving, where and because I once said that the. Uh, since starting Sunday Assembly, the thing which I've sort of most admire about religion is the organization. But people are always like, oh, I don't like organized religion. Like, That's how they go and feed people. That's where it's like going, okay, we should like say there's this idea of this word religion and I don't not attach to the current institutions, even though there's a load of wisdom within them, which should not be ignored or easily stereotyped. But then it should also like more things should take on the form and function of religious institutions, though I'd steer clear of that word. We talked about the idea of religions offering something beyond uh, this life and talking about those institutions you've just mentioned and how they could be more religious. One thing religion does offer to those who need it is also the idea of retribution and the idea that you may not get what you want in this life, which is unfair 
but somebody's looking out for you and oh, they're going to get it. Inherent in all those things you've just mentioned, that it hasn't happened to this point. People have suffered and they will not get justice. How, how do you deal with that on the sort of Sunday assembly and how do you see these new worldviews incorporating that idea that the world is inherently unfair and that bad people will prosper? That is something which doesn't go away when you when you get to the secular world and the same issues which plague religion and people would always be like, medieval Christianity could never work out how to do the free will. And so you had these people who uh, believed that God knew exactly what you were going to do and it was decided before you were born whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. And then other people said all of this stuff, like we still at the moment can't deal with free will. We've got no answer for it. Like there is a lot of very smart people who say that we've got the appearance of free will, but we are just going down railway tracks and we are on uh, coasters. Everything was decided. So in the same way, how on earth do we as secular people uh, Mm. deal with unfairness? They had uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways, that great sort of hand wave to be like, "Eh, uh, yeah, we've got these things don't go away because we're secular. Like life's really hard. It's not fair. Sometimes you'll try something and you are going to fail. Sometimes you're not even going to try something and something bad will happen to you. I'd say that what religions do is they also provide solace. They give this space to say that is that's all right. So much of the conversation we're having at the moment in the world is like, oh, everyone's got to succeed. If you don't do it, you weren't hustling enough. I've got, I worked morning, noon and night, whatever it might be. But basically only the people who do well in life get put, have microphones shoved in front of their faces. So then they explain all the things they did as though that defined them to be successful from the start, which is not true, except in my case. (laughs) And so we still have to go and provide that. And often in these discussions, I've had people say, oh, well, you know, religion's just a crutch. It's like, People need crutches. <laughs> yeah, on, on that topic, but perhaps I wasn't clear enough in my question. What I meant was, why sometimes when I go and watch Leeds United, do they lose? <laughs> <laughs> because they're scum. You're all scum. <laughs> you go and look all over and these fundamental human needs aren't being met. I saw a, I'm now going to try to describe a sort of cartoon or in an audio medium, and I'll do my best, but it was a... Uh, Can I just check which one? Because I know what topic we're discussing and I do not want to get letters or, or words. <laughs> Imagine, and it's a little, it's a really sad koala amongst a forest with all of the trees cut down and the koala's looking very sad whilst the psychiatrist says to him, he goes, oh, I think you're suffering from a mental health problem. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's the situation we're in at society. So let's get to the uh, the unething, Um, you know, because the thing that strikes me listening to you, Sanderson, is that in a previous time, yes, people did sort of bifurcate or whatever into their various beliefs, but there weren't that many available, if you, if you know what I mean. And there weren't that many belief systems available. So you kind of chose, you know, at, from quite a small sort of shopping basket. And strangely, the internet, which is supposed to be in, in many ways a great unifying force, has now given, you know, us an infinite basket of, mm. of uh, belief systems, some of them very damaging, for instance, like incels, for instance, you know. And, uh, and because you can now find, you know, it used to be that if you were the... Um, you know, the only guy who collected toenails in your village, you would be the only guy who collected toenails in your village. Now you can go on the internet and say, I collect toenails. You can find 10,000 people around the world who collect toenails and suddenly you've got a toenail collecting mm. religion. 
you know, so so I'm really intrigued by it seems to me that the, the very thing you're talking about, which is the good stuff about religion, the ability to bring groups of people together to collaborate, to start to see a wide group of people as somehow as equally valid as them, is in absolute counterpoint to the world we find ourselves in, where we have this unifying network, as if you like, mm. and you know whether that's broadcast news and, and 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 all that kind of stuff, or the internet, or whatever. And yet, that very unifying platform is the thing that allows us to be even more separated. Mm. I think that that's something which, again, that's what rel- good religions do uh, is, uh, and I would say religion-like structures. And so I'd say the nation state is a religion-like structure, which also allows people to go and collaborate who previously saw themselves as very different. And the like the d- various religions of the UK or the, I mean, the British Isles before Christianity came along. And even now, like as Christianity exists nowadays, basically, if you are a vicar and uh, if a vicar hears uh, everyone on your, uh, in your church believes the same thing, they'd be like, I wish. Mm. (laughs) There'd be people who've like still praying to saints, which have been scratched out years ago. There's folk who see God as like literally a guy on the cloud. Like there's loads of varieties within religions as well. Mm. And it is trying to find something which uh, allows for collective individuation where you know trying to find those myths which go and uh unify people and that's hard if it was easy more people would do it but i think that it's about like trying to learn how to go and include those people how can you like speak about things so that if you've got a different you collect toenails you hate toenails we can say oh no but it doesn't matter what your opinion is on toenails so it is trying to find those uh unifying mechanisms and so i would instead to think about like something like medicine. So medicine was previously like a religious sort of practice, wasn't it? Medicine men, shaman, uh, monks, all these sorts of prayers and incantations and spells you do. But people gradually got a bit better at it and they sort of thought, oh, actually I can do this in a totally different way. And uh, now when you go to the hospital, you're not saying, oh, I'm going to the secular witch doctor or I'm going to the secular shaman. You are going to people who might come from those religious traditions, but in fact are now doing in something in a very different way. And so that would be my hope for the future of religion, which is that we can say, look, these first things, uh, attempts were really impressive ways of helping people to make sense of the world. But actually, what can we learn from it and do it in a way where they're treated as a worldview, where someone who instead of being a vicar, they become a some sort of, in, in what I'm doing, lifefulness minister, whatever else word you, you want to do. And, you know, you you have people who are a cross between a therapist, a community organizer, a comic, a public speaker who are hosting these little communities where everyone can come. And so that's what like my own personal vision is, is a vision of learning from religion and trying to take it into the next step. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it makes me think of our local vicar, actually, in where I live in South East London, in New Cross. And I've heard a few times when people have been, you know, talking about I know various issues, and and, and someone will say to her, "What what does God think of this?" And quite often she'll turn around and go, "I think it's best we keep God out of this one." <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's that's kind of what you're saying. It's like, well, you know, it's more than that. It's more than you know my 
my particular belief. It's it's a you know she's kind of also being that community member that's bringing people together to discuss things. And sometimes she goes, yeah, let's leave the scripture out of this one because it's not very helpful. Well, even I'd say that there's the idea of God is really worth thinking about from a scientific point of view of like with our understanding of neuroscience and with our understanding of, you know, uh, how the hormones work in our body and embodied cognition that like, where did this idea of God come from? It was that if you thought really hard about things that were important to you, then you ended up feeling really connected to it. And actually, when you really, really concentrated and let a lot of ideas disappear, you felt that you had some guidance in your life by connecting to what's most important to you. And then if you get lots and lots of people together who all sort of are doing that together, it feels amazing. And so actually there's this, I think that even the idea of God is a really useful one as a metaphor for how we can go and inquire and how we can go and learn about ourselves. And so even that I think is ripe for reimagination. I, I like what you're saying and I, I fully support this new transforming mm. how we understand what religion is and whether we even use the word religion and unifying worldviews. At some point, those will still butt up against the traditional religions. And, and at a point when those people feel probably more cornered and threatened and defensive of their views mm. than ever. Where, where does that work out in your head? There's a really uh, interesting uh, anthropologist called Anthony Wallace who uh, whose work is on revitalization movements and how one way of looking at where we are at the moment in society is that we're in the classic moment when a revitalization religion, a renewal religion would spring up because they seem to start when the culture is no longer serving mm. the people who are in it. And so there will become some cultural steady state. He speaks about it in five states, five stages. Then there start to become some individual stresses. It's no longer working for everyone. Then stage three is there's major cultural distortions, probably a moment that feels like a bit like now, or maybe a lot worse to come. Hope not. And then there is a moment of the forming of a new uh, a new type of uh, revival. And what that does is it incorporates some of the old and some of the new. Mm -hmm. And so that's the ideal thing that you'd want to do is to sort of make it syncretic. And so syncretism is when you take on some of the old parts of a religion and incorporate it into a new religion. And so that's what a lot of Christianity did when it sort of came to the UK, it sort of built its churches on holy wells, it sort of came up with saints which were very similar to some of the local nymphs and fairies and was able to incorporate it as much as possible. So that would be what I hope would happen uh, as much as possible. I think what gives me hope there, Sanderson, because I've been feeling quite depressed about everything you've been saying, really, is um, <laughs> <laughs> I was stuck on that kind of, you know, even as we must unify, we are, you know, have this platform that is, seems to want to work to separate us and put us into our little groups. But um, I've seen this sort of thought that we're at this moment where everything seems sort of, you know, out of kilter. And these are the moments where, where new mm. things arrive. And actually that has happened before. We're going to interview... James Plunkett on the show about governance and he talks about how you know when we move from 
agrarian society to industrial society you know it was an absolute shit show and everything was horrible and lots of people got really damaged and everybody was confused and it took us 50 60 years to invent you know healthcare and the weekend and you know sick pay and you know and and education mm. systems and all that kind of stuff at least in in the west and he said you know and that happened because there was this schism that everybody was so disappointed and also it reminds me of there's a there's a theory in futurism, which I guess is my own Ed's field, called age cohort theory, which talks about how things happen. It basically says, you know, um, a new thing gets invented and that generation goes, look, we've invented this new thing. And the second generation goes, oh, great, we can grow that and turn it into something. And they, 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 they succeed with these new thoughts or ideas or technologies. Then there's a third generation, which kind of just rests on its laurels and goes, well, that was all very good. But it all starts to fall apart. And then there's a revolution where a whole new set comes around again. And that's sort of, you know, and I, I kind of feels that what I, in a way, the thing that gives me hope is what you're saying is all the uncertainty and sort of nastiness and kind of confusion of the moment is in fact the very birthing, uh, mm. the, the womb, the uterus out of which this new worldview, as you put it, might evolve, or at least some, at least some useful worldviews tied to our new technologies in the service of something bigger than ourselves, which might be fighting climate change. And so maybe it's we just got to ride the moment, and perhaps that's perhaps that's uh, in a way quite a relief. I mean, that's certainly the comfort I'm taking, but that's the way that's what I see in my work. And we are not the first culture which hasn't really had an idea of what on earth is going to happen next. That's really common. Mm -hmm. There have been these, you know, you lose a war. There's plagues. Literal plagues were really common and they totally changed so much about society. Half your mates died. There was no one left. It was the, the neighbors started attacking you and yet sort of there were rebirths out of it. New things became possible. And so I think that's how we've got to, sort of go and look at it. And then what does that mean for individuals? Is I think maybe just sort of saying, okay, what does it look like to go and find ideas which point to the future? You know, find things which enable me to feel more connected to other people. And it can be as simple as, you know, deciding to go and meet more people on your mm. street. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Literally, religions exist so that antisocial people like you don't rule the world. <laughs> but, you know, as you were speaking, Sons, and I was thinking, if only there was some kind of podcast that, you know, every week or so took a big issue and said how difficult and, and hard it was, and then here's what you can do at the end of it. That would be amazing. <laughs> this is Mark's bed for godlike status. <laughs> well, I wish you'd said the thing about um, religion really being about stopping people like me trying to rule the world. I feel we'd have had a tonally different conversation. <laughs> But nevertheless, I've enjoyed it greatly. And I think it's a good time for us to thank you for your time and your insight and your, your optimism and your vision for a better world. Oh, thanks so much. It has been a delight to have a chat with you. So there we go. That was Sanderson. And that was uh, our first episode of the third series, The Revelations on Religion. Thoughts, thoughts afterwards, Mark and Ed? Well, you know, what struck me really was what he's really talking about there is systems of cooperation and how different groups cooperate in certain ways, you know. But what he's saying is that as we go into this new world, which is much more interconnected, we have to almost to talk about what religion does well. We have to almost get past the definition of religion. In the same way, I suppose, really, John, that you've got past the definition of comedy and Ed has got past the definition <laughs> of poetry. <laughs> yeah, we're moving beyond that now to a new world, you know, and I, I think you you both embody that in your, your rejection of traditional comedic or poetic norms. You let the 
that people make their own definitions. Nobody knows what it is I do, but the important thing is they come to see it anyway, just in case it's going to be significant. But there is something in the comedy audience, though, in in that it is almost like a a religious experience in some things he was talking about, and that people get together, they Mm. congregate, they share an experience, Mm. they have come to see... A messiah of sorts. You <laughs> <laughs> get to bestow upon the gifts of laughter and all that kind of stuff. And they have a communal experience. And often it's very much about truth and human experience. So there's, some, there's not something dissimilar to a John Richardson show. Yeah, exactly. We have the Seventh Day Richardsonians uh, or the Temple of the Old Cardigans. Yes. Oh, very nice. You know what? I said I wasn't a religious person at the beginning of this pod, but I tell you what, that is a church I'd go to, the John Richardson. (laughs) (laughs) Brings us on to uh, the next new feature for Series 3, which will be the confessional booth. Yes. The Earthly Sins confessional booth is something I co-created in the early noughties uh, with my mate Cindy Rhodes. Uh, It's basically an excuse to dress up as a priest and hang out in Glastonbury Greenfields for about a decade. Um, but we took it all over the place. So the, the principle of it is guilt is useless. Um, it's a barrier to doing something meaningful. So the idea is you must confess, repent, and liberate yourself and seek absolution through action. So we are inviting listeners and guests to share their environmental sins. So take a seat in the booth, loosen your tongue, bear your soul, because everyone's a sinner, baby. Does it have to be just environmental sins? I think given the, the nature of the podcast, can we not have other sins as well? I think you can confess anything you feel guilty about. I feel like we should go first as Ed has asked the listeners to, you know, bear your souls. Perhaps we should bear our souls first. <laughs> and I think we're both committing the same sin, aren't we? What, right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've Googled the law, but yeah, this position is illegal. <laughs> we're both flying, aren't we, is what I meant. <laughs> With the sounds of maniacal laughter echoing into the distance, it feels a good point to wrap up our first episode. We will get into our confessions in coming weeks. We do have, uh, we've not been doing uh, nothing in the break. We do have some exceptional guests lined up and some genuinely fascinating topics to talk about. It's good to be back. You can reach us via the usual channels. If you need reminding, here's how to get in touch. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Bless you and good morrow. We will see you next week. Thanks for downloading. If you have downloaded, if you would take a moment to go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a nice rating and a nice review, that always helps boost us up the charts. I found out recently. I didn't know that, and... You know, this part of me doesn't want to beg, but equally, this part of me really happy to beg to get us up the charts. So please do leave us a, a nice review and a nice rating if you enjoyed the podcast. And I think if you've listened this far, you probably have. Uh, if you've listened to the very end and you've hated it, you need therapy. You really need to have a look at yourself. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye.